Welcome to Answer the Call. My name is Kelsey Kemp. I'm a career coach specialized in helping Christians discern their occupational calling and then practically land a job or start a business that allows them to fulfill it. So today, I am joined by my friend Eduardo Zaldivar. He's a venture capital and private equity investor who has humbly and boldly achieved pretty great heights in his career early on for the glory of God and the good of others, not just for achievement's sake. He's worked in consulting at a startup and is now in BC and PE before headed to Stanford next fall for a joint Stanford MBA and Harvard Masters in Public Policy program. I really can't wait for you to hear him share his thought process behind making impactful early career decisions and how to prepare and even network in a way that can help you achieve great heights uh, in highly sought after positions such as those at startups and in venture capital and private equity, ones that you might not see job openings for on LinkedIn and indeed in other traditional job posting sites. Kind of hard to get stuff. But before you think the purpose of this episode is to help you make impressive achievements just for the sake of it, I want you to know that that couldn't be farther from the truth. Because Eduardo and I both believe that achievement for achievement's sake is meaningless. Instead, you'll be encouraged and inspired by Eduardo's exceptional perspective, humility, let me say again, humility, (laughs) and purpose behind his hard work, which he pursues with a sense of calling, measuring his success not in material achievements, but most notably how he uplifts others relationally, especially the disadvantaged. Practically speaking, I know you'll also really love hearing his wisdom on helpful productivity practices that allow him to be impactful with his time and use it meaningfully, and also some incredible examples and some stories I really loved on how he's created a lot of luck in his career through networking and being prepared for those moments where luck might strike and you really need to be ready to take advantage of it. Okay, without further ado... Here's this can't miss conversation with Eduardo Zaldivar. All right, Eduardo, I am very excited for this conversation. And I also have a super ambitious list of questions that I'm going to try to plow through. So how about we just get started? All right, Uh, let's do it. Let's do it. So to kick it off, I'd love, in your own words, of course, I'll have a little intro beforehand, but what what are you up to and what are you all about? And if I can stack a third question on there, I would love to hear what a fun, um, what's a fun career dream of yours, big or small? Yeah, no, I appreciate you asking. I think, you know, what am I up to? So I'm an investor and I invest across a different kind of couple of categories. So I'm an investor at Clovis Point Capital, where so we do technology, private equity, so kind of lower middle market, investing in companies that are fairly mature, maybe 10 to $30 million in revenue, uh, oftentimes doing straight acquisitions. So I do a lot of private equity. On the side, I partner with a family office uh, here in Texas, and we do angel investing. So we do early stage tech, uh, maybe if you've seen like Shark Tank, very much more that style of investing. It's, it's earlier, so there's bigger risk, but kind of bigger payoff. So that's the kind of just as with the investing coin, living in Houston, which I'm which I'm enjoying overall. Really involved here locally in my church, Houston's first. Uh, was a member at Watermark in Dallas for a number of years. 
um, which is both similar churches. So my involvement largely revolves around those. And beyond that, I'm sure we'll get into the, in the podcast, I'm waiting a little bit just timing-wise. I'm going off to grad school in the fall. I was supposed to go this year, uh, but with COVID-19 and a couple other things, I feel like the best decision to defer for a year. So I'm a part of my time now just spent waiting, waiting, planning, being thoughtful about the next couple couple years, knowing that I have a terminal endpoint. Come May 2021, from, from fall 2021, I will stop what I'm doing for a full three years and be back in school. So a lot of it is a lot of my time is spent thinking about that and planning around that. So that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, the second question was around what am I what am I about? I think yeah, at a high level, gosh, just loving others well. I think I feel I'm sure we'll get into this. I feel called to do that in the area of finance, in particular, impact investing. How can we invest in such a way that people's lives are improved, that human suffering is decreased, that in, 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 in my view, people come to know the Lord through the love that we show them and the work that we do. So that's what I'm about, I impact investing. I'm doing that in a couple of different ways, but that's kind of terminal goal of my career, but also I interwove that in, into what I do daily. And I think your last question, oh, your last question was, uh, a career dream. Oh, yeah, you're doing so well uh, keeping track of all these questions because it's really obnoxious of me to ask three at once, <laughs> but you're doing great. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, so the, the question was around, you said kind of a crazy career goal or like? A fun, a crazy a one. A fun one. Uh, yeah. Gosh, okay. Um, yeah, I want to, and this is, this is, I think actually, I'm, when you sent me the questions, I was thinking through how to answer some of them, and <laughs> we'll get into this. I guess I'm not sure that I'm a believer in career goals. I think I'm a believer in life goals, and then the career goals can be prerequisites to that. So I'll speak to, to my life goal. I want to own a ranch. I grew up on a ranch. My Both my parents are farmers. They come from our lineage of, of family members in Mexico are peasant farmers all the way back. As far as we can trace, I come from a farming lineage, and I'd like to I'd like to do that in my future as well here in Texas specifically. So that's kind of a career life goal, and that involves a lot of career stuff because I do want to be back in Texas. So I know it's kind of weird, but at a high level, that is a goal of mine, and I think I have some career prerogatives to get there. Okay, that's not weird at all. Actually, you might be surprised to know that that's kind of a life goal of mine as well as the most <laughs> Uh, self-proclaimed Texan girl ever. <laughs> I definitely want to live on a ranch, specifically with a front porch swing. Um, I probably won't have a bunch of ranch dogs, probably ranch cats. <laughs> but um, if you achieve that dream before me, can I please come over for a little bit? Absolutely. You know what? I'm going to save a little plot of land. You can build a little house. We'll, we'll be neighbors. You said you're in Austin, right? I love yes. the Austin Hill Country. So we'll, we'll take this offline, but we'll, we'll, do, some, we'll do some scheming. <laughs> Oh my goodness. I can't wait. Uh, so I would like to start back a little bit in terms of background in college, because I think someone who really applies themselves very intentionally in their career, that often starts, well, I'm sure that you had some a good track record in high school and even before, but I would love to hear about your college experience and why you chose to study what you did, um, management information systems, um, and what were some key experiences you sought out in college to give yourself a really strong start in your career? Yeah, no, no, I appreciate those, those two really great questions. I think you know, what I studied MIS, I think, and is it, this is not advice that I give, I would give to everyone, but it's, it's advice that I give to some people. And, and it is, you know, study something that you are passionate about, but also 
it makes sense with with kind of your life context. I am a first generation college student and I have people that I need to provide for. And as much as I like other things like philosophy and English and, and history, I just needed to do something that I knew was going to provide for people. And so technology was was a good mixture. MIS is, is as you know, it's kind of the computer science within the business school. And I love computers enough, you know, I love video games growing up. So it was it's pretty natural for me to enjoy the work there. But I also knew pretty early on that if worse came to worst, I would be able to provide for my family off of my degree. So I kind of stated it because it was at, if you look at a, if it does an X and Y axis, the X axis being, you know, joy out of a career and then the Y axis being utility. This was the one that was the most up and to the right. It wasn't the most joyful because the most joyful had very little utility. It was philosophy and history, but also wasn't the most practical, maybe like finance, because I didn't really enjoy it all that much at the time. It was right. It was the, mo- the one that was more, the most up to the right. I love how you talked about your decision being a very thoughtful intersection <laughs> in that X, Y axis, because I think that is truly the way that most thoughtful career decisions are made instead of these very two-dimensional questions like, what am I passionate about? End of story. <laughs> and so especially I love the utility of your decision as well, that it wasn't purely utility, it wasn't purely passion, but you know, if it doesn't make no dollars, it don't make no sense <laughs> a lot of the time. Someone can fight me on that, but most of the time I stand by that quote. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> moving on into, actually moving on, before we start talking about your first job, your second job decision, I know that in college, you also applied yourself very thoughtfully to extracurricular activities. So tell me about your decisions there and how you feel that really helped you get a strong start in your career and get a really awesome first job. Mm, Yeah, no, I think that one, you know, college is a great time for experimentation. So I tried a lot of things. I think there's definitely some people um, that maybe feel like they know their calling really early on. And that's great. That's awesome. That wasn't the case for me. And that's okay. I think a lot of people, it's not, sometimes there's pressure to know really early on. I don't think that's healthy to, no. to be 18 and know what you want to do for the next 70 years. At 18, I was still eating crayons, right? I was very young. Uh, and it was just not, that's a lot of responsibility. And one thing that, that set me up really well in hindsight was I experimented with a lot. I was in a lot of different clubs. I dabbled in entrepreneurship, you know, the cybersecurity club. Uh, I did things on the nonprofit side. So I think you want it, it's a high level in terms of activities. I had a variety of things that I did. Um, I, I definitely had kind of my core, I was a business student, so I had full business organizations. So had some, maybe think, thought about maybe like a T-chart, right? Like be broad and be, be broad across the board, yes. And then have maybe one area that you double down in. If you kind of visualize a T, I doubled down on business and technology. Ended up being the right fit for me in the long term. But I, I'm thankful that I had enough experiences where even if I wasn't, if I wanted to do nonprofits, I had some experience there. If I wanted to be a serial entrepreneur, I was I, I, my, I set myself up in college to that to be at least an open door. So one, I think at a high level, really experimented in college. I think that's probably the biggest one. I think the second one I would say in terms of, you know, prepared me well was I sought out leadership opportunities. I think that as I look at the workplace, my comfort around leading even pretty large teams at a young age really made a difference in my career. I would just really early on, people perceive that as, you know, more mature or 
um, you're more capable, even if that's not necessarily the case, if you have a comfort around leading others well, um, it's going to help you in your career because ultimately so many, so much of project, uh, career progression is around leadership. And if you're able to do that at an early age, even if it's latent, right? Maybe your first year as an investment banker, you might be leading that many people. But because you've done that before, when that time comes, you will have kind of the upper hand, if you will, in terms of your peer set. Yeah, some context for sure. That is so valuable. And I really like how your context here was, um, well, first you mentioned experimentation and the value of that. So neat because I know that in the business school we were at, and I'm sure this has to be common in many other places as well. It's a lot of just checking boxes. And so I, well, Kelsey, I wanted to get into that organization because I'm sure someone wouldn't say this on a podcast, but because it was impressive and I knew it would give me the network uh, to potentially get myself into higher potential jobs. And that's wonderful, truthful, and great. And certainly helpful, but I like how you really were testing out your interests, what you're most effective at, and really what's stuck in all these positions and student organizations and even classes that you tried out. Yeah, I took like uh, archery, gymnastics, country western dance. When I talk about experiment, it was across the board. I know you were serious about it. I was very, very impressed by that. So now moving on into your early career decisions, what was it like choosing your first job out of college? Like, how did you land on deciding to go into consulting? Was that easy or uh, difficult, scary? I don't know. Yeah. No, I think, you know, for me at least, I was uncertain enough about career trajectory that it was a good idea. And for me, it was one of those things where provided for my family, I thought it was, I I knew it was going to be, you know, somewhat intellectually challenging. And then ultimately, if that wasn't what I wanted to do, it's, it was very easy to transition into something else. Uh, I think, as I say that, I think there's a danger. I think because we probably saw this a lot. In pers- there's a great article um, put out by the Harvard Crimson. It talks about like the, the dangers of optionality. If you're always seeking optionality in your career, you will never actually end up doing what you want to do. If, you're, <laughs> if your end goal is, hey, I want to keep my options open, that's not, that's not a worthy end goal. That should be an interim step towards an angle. And so for me, I at least knew that the first step out, I wanted to pursue optionality and consulting was a good way to do that. Uh, so for me, it was, it was fairly easy. Um, I think that I, I, I knew it was, I knew where I could get a job in the city that I'm from near to my family. I was in, in, in this particular division that I really enjoyed technology. And so for me, it was pretty straightforward. I didn't know where I was going to leave long term, but sometimes you don't need to know the terminal uh, position. Kelsey just didn't know the next step. And the next step was, you know, fairly easy for me. Amen. 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 I love this. So clearly I, I very much agree with the, I guess, decision-making framework. Gosh, I sound like so business school right now uh, that you applied to your first job out of college is yes, it is okay. Especially maybe you're uh, definitely your first potentially your second job out of college to seek out some optionality, mm-hmm. but be willing and ready to realize that the decision-making framework that you apply or the rationale you apply to making your first decision, career decision out of college, it has to be different than the way you'll apply yourself to your next 
career decision out mm-hmm. of college. And so start becoming more specific. You can't be a generalist forever. It's okay to continue to experiment a little bit, but try to start narrowing in uh, the funnel. Totally. I guess. Do you agree to that? Yeah, I think that um, ultimately, you know, the, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. <laughs> and if you keep zigzagging back and forth, you're never going to end up where you want to be. And that, that first one, yeah, it, it can be, you know, it could be a little bit off the beaten path. It could be, hey, I'm not sure this is going to get me closer. Yeah, I'm not sure how much closer it's going to get me, but I know it's not going to get me further away pursuing mm-hmm. that kind of career. So I definitely agree with that. I think over time, you should be, well, I hesitate to say that. I do think some people are meant to be like career-long uh, strategy consultants, and that and that's fine too. But that is such a minority of, of people. I think it's both my Kelsey, our friends who went into consulting, the amount of them that are still in that is a sliver. And so if just being a reason, being rational, you got to admit to yourself, that's statistically not likely to be me either. Mm, yeah, I love this. So then tell me about how you decided on your second, third, and even fourth, if I could ask about all of that, um, your next job decisions, because I know that you went into a startup and then you went into venture capital and then private equity and all this. So how did your decision-making model change? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely a millennial. I uh, can't keep the job down for very long. Um, so I, second, second second job, it was it was one of those things where I, just to be really candid with you, I'd gotten a good name on my resume. I got a little bit of insurance on the downside of my career. So I, I, at that point in time, I'd minimized downside risk. But I was ready to maximize upside potential. I was ready to stop playing it kind of safe, if you will, and pursue something that I was excited about. And the way the, the way that I thought about it was, what is going to be, is going to maybe sound, this is maybe not for everyone, what's going to be the most challenging thing that I could do that would also be the most excited about? I was pursuing growth at this point in time. And an early stage startup where I would have a lot of responsibilities early on, where I would have to do more engineering, also lead more teams, was right up my alley. I kind of, I kind of bought myself some insurance and safe, a kind of a safety net. If I needed to go back to consulting, I could, or to many other places because of consulting, I could. Now it's time to take that risk. That's how I thought about it. Created that safety net. Now, what is going to be the the highest impact, career impact thing that I could do for my personal development in both learning and experience? That's how I thought about the second job. Is that helpful? I'm happy to, to walk into the third job. But yes. uh, I was thinking how now I was safe to go be a little bit, take a little bit more risk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Please continue. I'm eating yeah, up. Totally. So did uh, was, in, was in, at a startup, loved my time there. It was absolutely the right move. I learned so much. Kelsey, I had a mentor who poured into me, um, who, you know, we were, we, had, we, were, we were both Christians and there was a lot of alignment there. And, and he mentored me in not just, you know, personal development, personal development as well. And over the course of two years, you know, became a manager at a, a, a high growth startup, helped grow that startup from less than a million to over 12 million in revenue over the course of a couple of years. And so it was really on a, you know, rocket ship, if you will. And that ended up working out really well for me. Uh, how I thought about the next decision was at that point in time, I'd done enough that I, I, I to your point earlier, I kind of began to at least know what I didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I also picked up some of the things about my job that I did like. I did like startups. I did like technology and innovation, but I didn't love how operational in the, the, the weeds that you had to be, you know, the fact that I was, I don't know, working on very, very tactical 
Excel problems all day that a client may or may not ever see. And so I said, how can I stay in the kind of startup world, but also get even more exposure, more see more startups, see more innovation, um, kind of tap into the parts of it that I really did like. And venture capital ended up being a, a really good spot. Now I, I got to confess, I feel that I got, um, I was very, very lucky to meet a couple. So we raised, we raised a couple million dollars in venture capital at the startup. And my CEO was, was gracious enough to allow me to tag along. And this is maybe the point to make. I asked my boss, I said, hey boss, this seems really interesting. Do you mind if I ride shotgun as you raise capital? And he said, you know what, Eduardo? I appreciate both of you to ask because it's going to be like very high stake presentations. But yeah, sure. Now it was, now they, it was very, very, my bosses were very, very, I would say they're ex-investment bankers. So you can imagine the kind of requirements around perfection that I had to work under. That's maybe an incredible, that, that had an incredible positive effect on my life, but it was tough. But the fact that they gave, they let me take that risk. They let me say, this guy's really young. Yes. And I also had like a man, but at the time, so like, that's, that's, a, that's what? a bold move. You had a man bun. <laughs> I have so much respect for you. Oh my gosh. I'm actually that. a fan of the man bun. Are you? Not, you know what? It's, it's divisive, um, but I'm really <laughs> glad that you're a fan. Most people were not. Let me be honest with you. Most people, the bros, all about it. Ladies in my life, uh, friends and family alike did not like it. Um, but yeah, the ladies I, in your life. I was just bold with my boss and he was gracious enough to give me a shot. And that opened a whole new world. I saw what, how awesome investing could be. And at, at that point in time, I knew I wanted to be an investor. And so I basically, at that point in time, through that process, met a lot of investors, followed up with them, stayed in touch, uh, found a good, a good jump off point. Um, I felt like I, I left my team in a good place. I, 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 I'd run the race while at my job. I could leave in a way that honored my teammates, but at the same time was something that I knew was better for me. And I, I joined a, a TXV Partners, which is a venture capital firm based out of Austin, actually. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Austin, if you moved here, approximately zero people would have problems with your man bun if you chose to still have one. <laughs> so, right in. This is a very man bun friendly place. Yeah. Uh, I loved hearing about all of the ways that you made that decision. But okay, here's where I very much want to dig into yeah. questioning is there are so many people out there that would say... <laughs> Wow, that sounds so cool. Yeah, I would love to work out a startup. I would love to get into venture capital. PE, oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd love to get into that. But so many people will say that. So few people will secure jobs in these areas. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. It is by no means easy. So how did you, if you have any practical strategies, I'm sure um, secure jobs in these very impressive fields? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think you know it was it was not easy. Uh, I think ultimately you have to be realistic about what's required, and then say yes, make a go or no go decision. And you have to for these kinds of jobs, you have to be all in. You cannot you know halfway sleepwalk yourself into a job, and and, and it takes both a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work. I I actually needed both. It actually absolutely was not a given, Kelsey that because of my hard work, I was gonna get his opportunities. It was not a given. I just got candidly, I feel like I got lucky. I'll give you a, a quick story about that. My, uh, how I got into TXV, I basically did, made a researched every single venture capital firm in Texas and then shortlisted them to the ones that I felt like would be a good cultural alignment. I said, okay, I, I wanna cut my teeth here in investing. I wanted to be a good place to work. Shortlist from there. At that point in time, 
made an even shorter list of people that I had at least one or two degrees away from in terms of connection. And TXV honestly roasted, it was actually the first, I got very lucky, first from I talked to, they just roasted the talk. Cultural alignment, both my partners, Marks and Brandon, are black, I'm obviously brown. We come from the same background. We just had similar perspectives in life. And I said, this is a very unique opportunity. I'm gonna go all in it, at this one. If this doesn't work, I'll go on to the next one. And so uh, it, my, my, my roommates remember this time well, I literally pulled an all-nighter and a half the day before the coffee chat and a half. I did not sleep for like a day and a half. And, and prepping for what was a literal 30-minute coffee conversation with the founder of this firm. I said, hey, I get one shot here. I literally... So long story short, a mutual contact made the made the intro. I said, "Hey, it looks like we have marks in common. You mind making a warm intro?" And he's like, "Sure, I'd be down for that." And that's helpful. Warm intros are, are great. And he's like, "Hey, Eduardo, I'm super busy, but would love to meet you. Someone spoke highly of you. Let's do a 30 minute coffee chat." And I said, "This is this is awesome." So I literally read everything that I could about the space he was in, and then when I and, and so I did a lot of prep, way more than should have been necessary for a coffee chat. But then we get into the coffee chat, and I know everything. Right. It feels it feels like I know everything. I really don't rest. I, I, I don't know everything, but I'd spent all this time the, the previous couple of days. And, and I, let me take a step back. When I decided to go into venture capital, this was like a 12, not 12 months, it was like maybe eight month process. I probably read seven books on venture capital, listened to 100 hours plus of venture capital, took an online modeling course. So it's one of those things where, yes, I got the job in a conversation, but that was a 12-month preparation for the conversation. It's kind of like that old story, you know, a lawyer is, is billing someone. He's like, you billed me 100K for an hour of work. He's like, no, I'm billing you for 10 years of law practice and four years of, three years of law school. And it was a similar process. Yes, the conversation at Ascension Coffee in Dallas clinched it. It was several months of work to get there. Oh my goodness. I love this so much because I just published an episode on imposter syndrome. Mm. And a lot of people, including myself in the past, have looked at different career options um, before I obviously settled on this one um, and thought, gosh, well, I, I see such a gap between where I am and where I would have to be in order to be maybe someone would think worthy or qualified or these big words for this job. And the thing is that there is real work to be done to become qualified. It, it's not necessarily, it doesn't have to be the biggest leap of all time of asking someone to take such a chance on you. You showed up to that coffee conversation saying, I've taken these courses. I've read these books. I've done my self-study. I'm not asking for any handouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, still to get that position, uh, it's just such an accomplishment, but you did so much work in advance. But I'm sure that many people listening like me are kind of dying to hear how that conversation actually went down. Like, how did you, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure. I'd like to ask if there was an era of like you were, initiating. So then how did you facilitate the conversation? What kind of questions were you asking? How did you kind of drop all these nuggets? Like, Hey, I kind of know a lot about you (laughs) without being too creepy. I have a billion questions. Please tell me how that conversation went. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I just, and this is maybe a good point of, of, for, for the listeners, it helped a ton that there was some immediate trust built in who we knew. Mm -hmm. Um, The person that referred me to him made the warm intro was someone he really trusted they knew each other for years. 
And so going into the conversation, his, his, and not that I was like manipulative, but his guard was down. He, he was ready. He was excited to hear what I had to say. It wasn't an uphill battle. It was just a conversation. So there wasn't any media skepticism. There was this, hey, I'm just meeting with this guy and I'm not skeptical. I'm also not going to, he had, at this point in time, Marcus had no idea that I was going to ask for a job, right? But he's like, I'm just really, really open. And that helped. It's just so much harder when either A, they don't know who you are. So there's initial skepticism or two, it's just immediately obvious that you're going to ask for a job. It's just like, ah, just, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's just harder. The fact that I won, I said, hey, I'd love, I'm very uh, excited about what you're doing. I love the firm. I'd, I'd love to connect uh, over coffee. So, you know, hey, let's make this low stakes. One, two, let's make it 30 minutes. Also very low stakes. Not a lot of your time. Uh, and then three, someone that you trust referred me. So that, that, that I don't want to put too much emphasis on how great of a talker I am or how smooth or, or whatever. No, I got, I got, I was just set up for success. And I know that's not everyone's story. I think it's important to emphasize that so much of this is going to be a little bit of luck and, 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 and trusting that the Lord ultimately has a plan and not being discouraged when those conversations don't go well. Um, I, over time, and I'm sure we'll get to this later, I have also had conversations like that not go well. I have absolutely had conversations. I had a, this, real quick story, I had an executive that I was connected with, kind of, kind of, kind of warm, but kind of cold. You hop on the phone, he's like, so what are we on the phone for? That's the first thing he says. I had another guy who he's leader of a bit of a bigger company. He said, first question is, I said, Hey, well, I'm going to talk to you through my resume. He said, no, I want to hear what is your opinion on our public stock price? First question out the gate. These kind of cold meetings can oftentimes not go that well, but with Marcus, I would just set up for a little bit of more success because of the warmth there. So I did want to share that this doesn't always go this well. Most of the time it does not go well. So if you're listening to the audience, you have, you have some cold, cold chats or some warm coffee chats, they're not going well. No, that's common. You just got to power through those. So when I say that loud, uh, but the combo itself, yeah, essentially, you know, led off with a little bit of my background, kind of hit on the points that I knew would resonate with him. We come from both from a similar era of Texas. We kind of come from the same faith background. Uh, I knew that I, this is kind of maybe maybe it's maybe it's a little bit of uh, not everyone's story, but he, he was from Texas. He's a Princeton guy, but he's from Texas. So I saw that we had some mutual contacts on LinkedIn. I said, oh, how do you know this person? And that kind of helped warm me up uh, at that point in time. And this is where, once again, it's a little bit of luck. He shared about, there were just openings for me to express and articulate my knowledge. He would ask, he's like, he would start talking about his firm. And he said, so are you familiar with XYZ? I absolutely was familiar with XYZ. There was no way I, I was going to walk in that meeting not being familiar with XYZ. And so <laughs> that I had to kind of speak into what he knew, I took it tactfully. Um, just not being shy. I think it comes off. People know when you're confident about what you know. You can just tell this guy knows his stuff. And I think that was really clear up front that, wow, this guy, this guy is confident. I think for, especially in a field like venture and private equity, I was opinionated. I had a perspective on important issues. It wasn't just like, uh, I like the field that you're in. It was like, here, here are my complex, well-thought-out perspectives on what you do. And he might not agree with all of them, but you kind of at least get the sense that I'm, I'm bought in. So I think it was one, expressing that knowledge. Two, I wasn't just a guy adding people on LinkedIn. Like I was committed to this. Uh, and then three, I was just candidly just bold with the ask. So it was near the end of our conversation. So we had talked, we really vibed well. And I said, hey, Marcus, well, before we go, I, would, I, I love what you're doing. I think that, I hope that you see the alignment between our, our worldview and what, how we want to make this world a better place. Would you be open to me talking to you, the rest of your teammates, because I'd love to be a part of your team. 
So my ask was, yes, let me be clear. I want to work with you, but you're not hiring me right now. Can I speak to your team members? Can, can, can you at least get their perspective on me and see if we also vibe? So before you pull a trigger on me, let me just have another casual coffee chat with your business partners before you make any decisions. So I really lowered the, I lowered the stakes of the next steps, Kelsey. The next step wasn't hiring. No, no, no. It's like, do you mind introducing me to your business partner? I'd love to see if this is a good fit. He didn't have to say, Eduardo, we have a job for you. Eduardo, yes or no. He just said, let me text Brandon. How about you get some beers later this week? I said, that's all. That, that would be great. So it was kind of this process where the next ask isn't, isn't a massive jump. Knowing when the time, the, hey, can I have a job is, is a crucial aspect. Absolutely. Uh, okay. I feel like you should come across my Facebook feed in one of those like masterclass commercials that I get targeted for all the time. Like Eduardo Zeldor on how to do a very masterful uh, <laughs> coffee conversation because the key components I'm hearing from you that just really, these are the ingredients that I'm sure helped you hit it out of the park. You built a lot of rapport through um borrowed trust from getting such a warm introduction from someone that he really valued and trusted. You had common connecting points and were um, very intentional to build a relationship based off of those. Instead of just going straight in for any kind of requests for favors, you tried to make it a win for them to honor them too and, uh, and say, I really respect what you're doing. Here's why I didn't just look up your top five generic values on your website and say, I thought those were cool. Mm. You were there and you were very well prepared. I also really appreciate how you uh, had, well, just from who I know you are, you have a humble but authoritative attitude. And I think that one way that it really manifested itself well in this conversation was probably choosing to have an opinion, have a stance backed on research, backed Mm -hmm. by research. And so that really proves that, I I think that's a really authority building move as well. And something that I'm sure they really appreciated. And for this type of field, whether it's venture capital or working with any sort of startup or more of a high stakes situation, Mm. I think that you have to be able to have opinions, but good ones backed on by research. And so really, really neat. And I love how, again, you ended that conversation with a lower stakes request, make it easier for them to say yes. That's so honoring to them too, because especially in these business conversations where uh, a business owner, business leader, whatever, you're asking them to give you a job. Good grief. Don't ask them to like marry you all at once. Right. <laughs> so that's, I just, that's hard for every, it's hard for anyone. And, and the more data you can have, you have, you, you're absolutely right. You honor them. You say, Hey, I, I don't want to put you in a tough spot. I don't want to put you in a, in an awkward scenario where you have to make a decision off a 30 minute convo. How about we get to know each other a little bit better before I, you have to make that decision? So it is an honoring thing in terms of not putting a pressure that's undesirable on someone, even if they are an executive. No one, no one likes feeling that way. Yeah, absolutely. And more of a specific question to your context and startups, VC, PE, all this stuff. How common is it for people to get into this these different fields? 
through kind of traditional job application strategy where you go and you try to look up job openings and what is it like angel list or something where you go and see are there any openings at a startup I see so many people you know startups it's a cool concept I want you know I'm a millennial I want to start off my career in a super cool place like work for a startup hopefully that's yeah. like mission oriented I want right. to like work for Tom's or something that they're not a startup but anyway but how common is it you think to actually have that more traditional job application approach versus doing what you did. I'm not sure if you actually waited around to see if they had an opening. You were just going in for the conversation and it's very networking based. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I would say, I speak to PE and VC, uh, never. Never. (laughs) I've met, um, I'm sure it's more common in bigger firms, but as you might already know, Kelsey, uh, private equity and capital firms are really small. The teams, so for example, at Close Point Capital, we manage uh, 70, you know, all in all asset center management around 100 million. Our team is like eight people. And so the processes for hiring are not going to be the kind of Google, Facebook, AT&T process where it's really defined. And you go through this, there's these steps and there's online job. It is just not that. And so you have to, you, have to, you just have to know where you're applying and, and what the norms are. And for venture capital, private equity, the norms are not a job application on LinkedIn. I, I just, that, that just, I'm sure that happens. I guarantee, especially if it's a really big firm that's been around for 30 years and they have a really, they have a the HR team that that does happen. By and large, the vast majority of, of private equity and VC teams are really small, and so you're going to have to the way to, to get in is is not that way. It's to 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 be proactive rather than reactive, reacting towards a job opening versus you met them for coffee, you provided value. You help them out. You give them a shout out. And then six months down the road, turns out they're hiring and you're top of mind. That is absolutely the case. That is, and I mean, like I said, I'm sure there's scenarios where, yeah, someone, someone got in through a cold uh, LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn, easy apply button, right? I'm sure that's happened, but I have never, ever heard of that happen. Yeah. Amen. Everyone, please listen up. And what about for startups too? Because I know that you worked for one and you probably engage with a lot of them. And so how often is that the case that it's that easy to apply versus networking? Totally. I think it's a little bit easier in that oftentimes, you know, startups are, are, um, are strapped. They're, 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 they need things. They, They more actively are in the, in the process of building something and hiring and building and, uh, more often than not, understaffed, right? Startups, it isn't, a, everyone works 38 hours per week. Everyone's probably wearing a lot of hats. You so much, as you mentioned in earlier in your, your entrepreneurial journey, you're doing a little bit of everything and getting a, a little bit of help is huge. So I think it's a little bit easier for startups. I think in, it depends on like what stage they're at. If, if they're like kind of series B, you know, 10, 50 million and higher, generally speaking, they are needing so much talent so quickly that an online app can work. Ultimately, I mean, just just really, I'm just really candid. You increase your likelihood of success exponentially by knowing someone, connecting them with them personally. Even if it's you know, even if it's not, maybe you don't know anyone there. But you know, there's what's that old saying? It's uh, I don't you know, I don't wait to strike until the iron is hot. I make the iron hot by striking. And sometimes that is required. You can create your own warmth. You don't need someone else to have a warm lead. Create your own warmth. Uh, but with startups, a little bit easier in that they're oftentimes hiring PEBC 
Chelsea, after their raise, you know, they do a fundraise. After capital, after uh, investment firms raise the capital, they don't hire at all. And the reason for that is because they don't have revenue. As an investment firm, we can't grow the team until seven years later when we raise a bigger round of capital. So there actually, there is, there really is not a hiring process because you hire someone new every four years when your fund grows in size because you don't have any revenue inflow. Does that make sense? There's no, there's no way you can hire someone. Yeah. So I'm assuming get in earlier <laughs> or, you know, just establish those consistent networking processes because, mm. or practices, because you don't know when that might come along for the company and probably also be tending the field or a lot of different fields 100%. to see. And especially getting in earlier, if you're able to get to know people in different startups, uh, whatever position they hold that, I mean, pretty cool if you're connecting with founders and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd like to hear your opinion on coming into those conversations, knowing your personal brand and the value that you're able to provide. So they know, um, like a, a phrase that I hear a lot and try to practice a lot in my business is help people know what you're known for. So they know how to refer you, how to connect mm-hmm. you, what you're, what they should call you for help on. So if you're, if you have something that you're known for, then they, you're in a much better position to be called up when they know that where they wish they had a really expert salesperson, mm. uh, sales lead or marketing or whatnot. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure yeah, <laughs> if that no. was more of a point or anything to have an opinion on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'll affirm that. I think ultimately it, sometimes it's harder when you're during your career, but the sooner you can have kind of your, to your point, your brand, that is better if, and, and just being vocal, not being not shy about that, right? Kelsey, if your thing that you're passionate about is helping people find their calling, why not tell everyone about it? How, how will Kelsey, how will someone that wants to help you help you if they don't know what you're trying to do? It'd be impossible. No matter how much your close friend cares about you, if she has no idea what you do for a living, how could she ever like serve you well in that capacity if they don't know? So I think you're absolutely right. Just being, being willing to be too vocal about what you want to do. Exactly. Even when I was looking for a different job, I was in my career search before I settled on this one. I was telling Uber drivers what I wanted to do. I wanted Mm -hmm. to actually move to London at that time. And I actually got a warm intro into a finance company in London because who would have known that this guy, he like sells insurance for this huge multinational company. And he just does Mm -hmm. Uber on the side and listens to Dave Ramsey as he's (laughs) driving everyone around to airports at five in the morning. (laughs) So just literally tell everyone what you're about or what you're Mm -hmm. hoping for. Okay. But back to you, I want to hear about what are some consistent networking practices that you've established? Because this is clearly a theme here. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, one is give before you get. Being willing to add value. The amount of times, the amount of phone calls I have, Kelsey, that go into the void. I'm just helping someone that reached out somewhere is just so, so numerous. And you have to trust that in the long term, uh, people are going to get to, it's not that I, not that I believe like in a, in a kind of new age karma, it's more that just practically speaking, um, people over time, they'll, 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 the public will have a perception of you. And that perception is someone that's helpful. That's, that's going to be a good thing for your career. And so next time when I need something, or I want to get into this job field. There's, I, I probably have hopped on a, hey, can you tell me more about your field call? I probably do like 10 of those a month. And over time, 
maybe you're down the road. I post on LinkedIn that I'm looking for a job. Someone that I helped along the way is probably going to be in that space. And so I think one, just giving into the community that you're in before you ask anything back is just pays an incredible amount of dividends. That's, I think it's a, it's a huge networking practice that I would encourage. I think the other one would be uh, be proactive. I think that's that sounds uh, kind of easy, but the vast majority of people just don't. So if you're someone that is, you know, you're, you're out at events, you're asking people to coffee, you're connecting with people, you're involved in nonprofits locally, you're involved in, in you know, kind of ad hoc initiatives. Like I, I do a lot of those like this, hey, we're getting good to do this group for mentoring. Okay, sign me up. In my times that, I, that, that that has come back and been fruitful, it is really high. So I think it's being proactive versus like reactive because the best time to, to be, you know, talking to people for a job is before you need it. Not when you're, you got three months left of, of, of savings and, and that's just a, a much harder uh, proposition. Oh my gosh. I'm going to pull that out as a sound bite and hopefully blast that everywhere because please proactive stuff. I, I just think what you're saying is so true. The common stuff isn't, or common sense isn't so common. Like you would be amazed. We could hear all the speeches in the world about how to advance your career and people can listen to those like five BuzzFeed tips and be like, really, that's it. But so few people are actually going to execute on all of those things. So a couple more questions that I would love to ask you is you, you do so much, you get so much done. You have such a full life. I just want to learn from you productivity wise. Mm. What are some practices that you've established to be able to um, manage and do so well with so much? Yeah, um, I definitely think, well, one, I think you have to decide. It's all about trade-offs. If you want to have, you sleep nine hours a night, have a super rich social life, be really involved, be seeing your family every single evening for dinner and, you know, be the number one in your field. That's just not realistic. You have to make a choice. I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to prescribe any particular risk or, or any kind of what, what choice you should make is different for everyone. But I, I've, you have to, you have to one, just be self-aware and know, okay, I, that's just I'm going to make and then just do it. I think for me, just practically speaking, because I do want to get tactical here. I do a couple of things that really help me. One, I have a, if you heard of screen time, it's like a functionality in the iPhone. Mm-hmm. I have a three-minute timer on all my social media apps. I have a total of about nine social media minutes a day before my phone literally locks me out, and I don't have the passcode. Someone in Dallas has the passcode. I literally, once I hit nine minutes a day of social media, I cannot get on until 12 a.m. the next day. It's just kind of, it, part of it is part of doing what you want to do, saying yes to things, is knowing what to say no to. No one to say no to and saying yes to the thing that you want to say to. So I, I've said no to social media. Uh, I have, and this is where it's a little bit extreme. So I'm, I'm, I'm not recommending this. I haven't watched TV in a decade. Um, <laughs> little things like that really enable my time now. To, to be sure, I'm not a workaholic. I spend a lot of time with friends. I'm really involved in my church. But I've said, hey, I know I'm going to go all in on the things that are meaningful. And I absolutely cut out the things that are not to me. Social media movies, TV shows. I'm not saying those aren't good things, but for me, I've I, I made my choice and just being incredibly disciplined about the no's enables the yeses. Yeah. That is so encouraging for me to hear. And you must stand out and just minister to someone, not to sound like too caught up in hyperbole, but I am seriously buzzing over here. I can't believe how bright of a light that must show to others that you are not 
just a pure workaholic. You really do make time for the other important things, incredibly rich time with friends, family, community, all of that. But you're cutting out a lot of the meaningless stuff. And mm-hmm. But I am curious how you wind down and have... Uh, sufficient rest for your mind? Because I know that social time can, it's not always just decompressing. It is also very engaging, just like work is. So Mm -hmm. how the heck do you not fry your brain? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I I would first admit it's taking time to know how to do that well. And I think over time, what 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 has really helped me and how I've done that is knowing what rest looks like for you. It doesn't have to look like it does for other people. They were like, Eduardo, you haven't watched TV, what? Well, it doesn't bring me rest. I don't feel rested, energized, at peace after a Netflix binge. Some people do, I get that, that's just not me. And I've realized over time, what rest looks like to me is spending time with others and reading books. And I make sure to do that every day. I spend time with, and thankfully I'm a little lucky that I have roommates around my age group, so I have that very accessible way to rest. But I, no matter how much I work in a day, sometimes 14, 15 hours, I spend at least 30 minutes, in my case, reading the Bible and having a conversation with my roommates, even for 15 minutes. That, and you'd be surprised, Kelsey, how much that keeps burnout at bay. If I go four days without talking to my roommates or friends or reading the Bible, I will for sure start to feel it. And I think just knowing what rest looks like for you and then having that be a non-negotiable in your life. Um, I think that's that's been the major way that I've done that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I am super, super inspired by this. I would love to make sure that we get the chance to talk about your sense of calling that you mentioned earlier in the episode. And you started to touch on what you feel called to do, but I would love to get a little bit more into that, um, what you feel called to do, and then also how you relate to the topic of calling. Cause I know some people just don't really find that as even a helpful topic. It's not something they think about a lot. Like, what am I called to do? They're not so much asking themselves that they're just like, well, logical and linear. <laughs> and I'm just making decisions that make sense. And I objectively think it helps people. So I'm curious how you've engaged with that topic and if it's been significant to you. Yeah, gosh, that's, that's, that is, that's a tough one. I think there's a lot of perspectives mm-hmm. on it. I think I'll say, I say a couple of things. I think I'll start off with a quote. It's by Brett Buchner. He says, the place where God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Mm-hmm. And that has absolutely been the case for my life. And it's something that I would encourage other people to reflect on. Even if, if maybe you're of a different faith, reflecting on what is that intersection of how you're wired and what the world needs most. I think that is the path or an important part of the path towards life satisfaction X and, and deriving meaning from, from your life. It might not be the most lucrative. It might not be the easiest, but if you're trying to optimize for life satisfaction, significance in life, I think that's the way. The one that's how I think, that's how I think about calling. I do think, I just want, and maybe it's controversial. I, I don't think everyone has a, a quite a, a very specific calling. You have some people like, I don't know, William Wilberforce. He was a very young man when he said, he wrote it in a journal, he has a biography. He says, I, I feel the Lord put two great things before me, the abolition of slavery and the reformation of manners. He knew at a really early age his calling. I think that happens for a lot of people, but I would argue that for many people, it does not happen. 
and people shouldn't feel like inferior because of that. I think at that point, you just follow kind of the quote that I just gave. Okay, so I don't have a specific thing. It's not like overnight, God told me, you know, whispered in my ear that I should be a nurse or whatever it is. But optimizing still for this path of the intersection of purpose and what gives you life, I think is how I think about calling. I think some people are called a very specific thing. I think that's true for some people. I think the rest of us are on a journey to figure out if that's us or not. And the journey has to be meaningful to you too. Yes. Oh, goodness. I love that you talked about this, mentioned it, because even though obviously I engage with the topic of calling for a living, I mean, I think it's my calling to talk about callings. And I actually completely agree with you. If we're defining calling, uh, or I agree with you that I don't think everyone has a calling if we're defining it as that God whispering in your ear in, right. in the wee hours of the night and uh-huh. saying you should go uh, apply yourself to this uh, initiative that is going to abolish slavery. Mm-hmm. I don't think that everyone is going to <clears throat> receive, uh, quote, air quotes, like receive a calling in that way. But I, if we're defining it as I believe that we are called to, I very much model or take my model of what I believe a calling vocationally is from the parable of the talents that mm-hmm. actually the master uh, gave those three servants zero directions. Mm-hmm. He just said, I'm going on a trip. See you when I get back. But mm-hmm. when he got back, he judged each of those servants based on how they stewarded the res- his resources. Yeah. And he expected them to multiply, know that they should have been resourceful to not only just take those, his gold and bury it in the ground and make sure it didn't get stolen, um, but to acknowledge the preciousness of that gold and that it should yeah. be used to the max um, of its potential and mm-hmm. to be invested and bring about a greater harvest from it. And so I think that how we apply that to our career context is acknowledging, I love that the it's the parable of the talents. The talents were meant to represent actual gold. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what they called that unit of currency mm-hmm. at the time. But I love, let's extrapolate that a little bit if we can to our innate abilities, our yeah. innate talents and giftings and uh things that we're very effective at and mm-hmm. also what we were entrusted with to care about. Not everyone was made to care. No one was ca- made to care about <laughs> the same thing if we yeah. really drill it down. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we are called to look, take personal inventory to great yeah. depth and then to not usually, this is kind of controversial for some people, wait for directions. I typically don't think, and I would love your opinion on this, I don't think it is the faithful approach to wait for the writing on the wall. Mm. Because I think that the biblical model for decision-making is quite active and we get the opportunity to grow in wisdom through trial and error in making decisions without God giving us these specific directions, which I don't always see biblical precedent for. So I think um, we're all called to be faithful and active in that way. And that's why I would say, this is my proposal (laughs) for why I believe we all do have a calling in that sense, but not the writing on the wall. Totally. I think that, I think you're absolutely right. It's a hundred percent okay. And I would encourage being active in, in how you pursue your career. But I think it's your point, 
that, you know, just being faithful in, in what, you, what you currently have in, in, in pursuing excellence. And, but then whatever path you're like, okay, I'm going to, well, I'm going to go down this path, pulling that loosely. Right. I think it's Proverbs 16, nine says in their hearts, human plan their course, but it is the Lord that establishes their steps. And that, that doesn't say humans, you know, don't plan your course. That's sinful. It's like, that's what humans do. And the Lord, the Lord has given us proactivity and, 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 and healthy ambition, but hold that loosely. If you are like, I, I, well, I thought I was going to be this. If the Lord opens up another door or shuts that for you, just being faithful in whatever that next step might be. I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I'll say, I've been wrong multiple times about what I thought my career was going to be. And that's Amen. okay. Me too. And I, yeah, ex- yes, exactly. Both of us have previous backgrounds. And um, I think the Lord can absolutely use that if you allow him. If you're humble enough to say, Lord, ultimately, I'm going to find your will for my life. That doesn't mean I'm going to be sit on my butt and wait. But when I'm gonna I'm gonna do this because it is righteous and I enjoy it enough, it gives me enough enough satisfaction. But if you have something else in mind, Lord, I'm 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 open to it. Yes. Oh gosh. Amen. 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 I completely agree with that. Two final questions, mm-hmm. if I may. This is another kind of big one, but I would love to hear your thoughts on how you personally measure your success. Mm. Gosh, that's such a tough question. I I I. I I was thinking through that earlier and I decided to go to bed. I decided I'm not going to, I'm not going to think about it until this conversation. I think that, you know, at a high level, I think you have to, I've at least known I, over time, I've realized what I don't want to measure my success by. Um, and that's wealth, status, prestige, those kinds of things, whether you're, you're, you know, of a different faith or share my Christian faith, those things are going to pass away. No one at the end of their life is like, if I would have made more money or if I would have just gotten to CEO instead of COO, that isn't, that isn't what people think at the end of their lives. And kind of keeping the end in mind there, I think that should inform how, how, how we pursue things and how we measure success. And there's a quick anecdote, you know, J.D. Rockefeller, one of the men of all time, he was asked in the interview, he was at the head of his wealth, they asked him, hey, you're still working, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. And that is the trap that we fall into, that next title, that next A raise. That is the, you know, the, the hedonic treadmill. It will never be enough. So I think in my perspective, you should measure success by something else. That might include, though, some level of career trajectory. A small example, it's okay to pursue being a CEO if you want to be the first woman CEO in tech. In that case, in, in the reason there being to inspire the next generation of young women technologists. In that case, it's totally fine for that to be how you measure your success if there's something meaningful behind it. So I don't want to say that. At least over time, I've realized what I don't want to measure my success by. Uh, I think technically what I do, I think it's like one or two things. One, for me at least, it's I, at the end of my life, if I can say, I always did the right thing. I always did what was the most, that honored people best that was the most morally correct thing, that is gonna be one of my major measures of success. No matter how much money I do or don't make, I do or don't accomplish, if that metric of success is not met, I have failed. Two, if, and, and this is, everyone's a little bit different about this, but for me, if others have been the main beneficiary of what I've done, if the end goal is me, that to me, that is failure. If um, my end goal was to maximize X of Eduardo. I think I have failed. But if it was somebody else, maybe that's 
you know, my giving in nonprofits. Uh, I volunteer or I donate to Wipe Every Tear, which is a women's ministry around fighting sexual trafficking. I volunteer, I, I donate volunteer with Compassion International, um, where I donate to a young child to have food and to drink and shelter. Those are the things outside of myself that I, at the end of my career, will say, have I been a success or not? And I've never heard anyone regretting that, Kelsey, but I've heard many, many people regretting, I measure myself by money, by title, and I lost everything in the process. You know, in, in, in scripture, it talks a lot about, you know, what is the profit of man to gain the whole world yet for his soul? You, you actually, and I'm, this is not just a Christian thing. Secular people would say, I'm, I, I missed the mark. I don't even know my wife. I don't even know my kids. And all for what? To be alone in this, and to be alone in this massive mansion, you know, with no one that 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 will remember me when I pass. And so, I think that is the measure for me. One, having done the right thing, no matter the cost. And then two, if I have done it for others, those are kind of my metrics. Oh, absolutely! Wow, I I think that those are the things. Like, did I do the absolute best with? what I knew at the time and what I had at the time for the glory of God and the good of others. I can't imagine that not being the most effective strategy. To... Never heard someone regret that. Nope, not once. And it just so reminds me of the end of the parable of the talents when um, I think in chapter 25, verse 23, when the master goes to the faithful servants and they said, look, I, I multiplied your wealth and I doubled it. Um, and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with little, so you'll be entrusted with much and come and share in your master's happiness. Yeah. And God is so good to when we are open-handed and we realize that our lives are his, our talents are his, our resources, our opportunities, they're his, but we're just trying to do the best we can um, with those to steward them well. Then he says, come and share in your master's happiness. That is incredible. The last question I'll ask is, I know that you must engage in quite a bit of mentorship with mm -hmm. uh, peers and those younger than you. Um, and I'm sure <laughs> even those older than you, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, many people come and ask for your advice. So what is the final nugget of career advice that you find yourself giving to others um, that you mentor? Yeah, I think, gosh, I think I for sure tailor it to whoever I'm talking to but I'll give you a specific kind of audience, a specific piece of advice that I give. I often meet with people from AM or other schools, uh, all kinds of schools um, that are really high achievers. During their whole life, they've been high achievers. And we're talking about next steps or career or whatever it might be. Uh, a lot of times perfectionists, which is, which is great. I love my perfectionists. And what I often give in terms of common counsel, but also contrarian counsel, I don't think they hear this from anyone else. Because uh, I, I think you, you can find a lot of things online, Kelsey. I'm, I'm going to tell you something that I don't hear people say, and that can be counterintuitive. I think, I guess of us people, if you have not or don't meaningfully fail in your career, you've not done enough. Mm -hmm. And let me that just for a second. If you, if you have always, you know, for your whole career, you kill it, every job, every project, everything you do, there's one or two possible realities. One, you're a, literally a genius savant who can make no mistakes. Or two, you've played it safe your whole life. It, it, it's one or the other. Either you literally can never fail or your whole life you haven't tried things that were actually that difficult to you. 
because you you will never know your the limits of your abilities until the abilities are insufficient. Does that make sense? Like I won't know oh, yeah. how to bench press until I get that weight on the bar that I can't push. Right. My maximum is the one right before that. Right. So if you don't experience failure, you will never know the maximum of your potential. And I don't mean that small failures like oh this this, this I got yelled at this one project went bad. But like if if it is not a meaningful failure for you, if it if it didn't cost you any emotional investment, it wasn't meaningful, right? And so that's my advice that I give. Hey, just keep that in mind. I think most people, so many people, optimize for success. I'm gonna do that thing only if I know that I'm good at it. I'm gonna take that class. I'm gonna get that job because I I am afraid of failing. I'm afraid of being being seen as less than perfect. I think that we should not fear that. I think we should fear not living out our calling and our potential. It's about what you fear um, and what's, what you're more at risk at. I think more people in our kind of circle, in our, in our life, because we've been very blessed with a good community, are more at risk at underliving than they are at failure. And I think that, that kind of paradigm shift is, has been, you know, so many people that I know that are in investment banking and strategy consulting, and they go on to that next Thing that's a natural progression. Well, how will you know, Kelsey, if you can ever be an entrepreneur if you're never going to start that podcast? I'm sure if you would have said at PwC, Kelsey, you would have killed it, but you knew that too. You never knew if you were going to be able to make it as an entrepreneur. And here you are, you know what, uh, two ish years later. And so that's what I would encourage people because it's more, less of a piece of encouragement and more a way to think about it. If you don't experience meaningful failure, one or two realities are possible. Either literally you're the, the greatest, the GOAT, the greatest of all time, <laughs> or you have lived in fear. Which one, which one will it be for you? Absolutely. I love this. And I love that you're probably giving this, especially to a lot of college students, that they might have never felt the feeling of looking like a fool because mm, they have a so grid and they could succeed in it. But you have to give yourself permission to fail, take on meaningful problems that might result in meaningful failure and put yourself in a vulnerable state and realize that you are going to be the bottom dog. <laughs> that That's something that um, Dr. Matt Josephy, which I'm not sure if he spoke in um, mm-hmm. a class that we were both a part of uh, when we were in that together, but he started out one presentation I heard with this class of high achievers that he was speaking to is at the highest potential for not living up to their potential Mm. (laughs) because if you're essentially i think he was echoing what i love how eloquently you said it it's like what do you fear Mm -hmm. (laughs) i gosh anyway i am beaming over this conversation i wish that people could see the video because i have been just obnoxiously hand gesturing lots (laughs) of like praise hands lots of like just um really appreciating so much all the wisdom that you've shared your example really does inspire me and I'm sure many others listening to this so much so thank you again for this conversation it has really been an honor for me appreciate you having me Kelsey and last thing I'll say is know that it's not because I I was always a really smart guy or that I am a smart guy is that the Lord in his mercy has has taught me these things and James 1 5 says if anyone lacks wisdom let him ask of God and he gives without reproach. And I've asked of God because I've needed it in my life and I continue to need it. And I hope everyone listening acknowledges that in themselves as well. Yes, yes. Oh, me as well. That's one of my biggest prayers. Wisdom, Lord, <laughs> please help mm-hmm. me. So 
goodness, very convenient that my voice is failing at the end of this. <laughs> but <laughs> thanks again. Absolutely. Appreciate your time, Kelsey. Wasn't that incredible? I hope that you were just as inspired as I was by this conversation with Eduardo. And I can't help but share one thing that he told me after I hit stop on the recording. He said, I really hope that people know that I am not smarter than them. I don't have it all. And I hope that they read into my comments about failure in terms of realizing that I have been through quite a bit of failure. I am not perfect. I don't have it all. And I, he, I think has really just hit home so much for me that he wants others, no matter what walk of life you're in or where you've come from, to know that you have a shot. And he, I see this so strongly in how fervently and passionately he mentors others. He will pick up the phone uh, with whoever and is so humble and generous to do that and um, lift up however many he can, especially those who might be tempted to um, think that they have insurmountable circumstances. I think that he is so gracious and compassionate towards that, but wants to serve as an example of what's possible, not because of how great he is, but how gracious God is. He reiterated that over and over again um, in our conversation after the recording ended, how gracious God is and how much he wants to serve others in any way he can to help them see what's possible. Um, for the glory of God and the good of others. So um, I am sure that you join me in having a lot of respect and admiration for him. And uh, yeah, I really hope that this conversation was encouraging to you. And if you do think it would be encouraging to a friend, go ahead and pass this episode along to them. Um, I'll humbly ask that if this was really a blessing to you, that just do a quick action to support the show by literally just making one click to tap the stars. If you would like to leave a rating, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, or if there's a rating mechanism on any other podcasting platform you're listening on, you would be surprised how just that one click really does support the show and represent to others how, um, hey, lots are listening and I hope are blessed by this. And so it helps others get connected with the show because the podcast platform knows to recommend it to more people. So Anyway, I really hope that you're having a wonderful December thus far, and I'm praying for you in this new year that it's one that's very impactful for you. Um, and yeah, all right. <laughs> I hope that you have a wonderful week, and I'll meet up with you this time next week, same place, same time, for another podcast episode here on Answer the Call. All right, bye for now. <laughs>